Alright, so again, we're looking at Psalm 2 in order to um, work through Psalm 1 and 2. And um, since this is more informal, um, I will try to ask some questions, if I remember, to not just push through. Um, It is 12 verses, and I do tend to get into the details. I am going to get into the weeds a little bit, and but I, I hope that getting into the weeds just a little bit will be still be a blessing as you work through some of this and, and we, we figure it out. And um, But yeah, so ask questions uh, if you need. Um, you can raise your hand or shout out. If I don't see you, shout out and say, hey, Scott. Um, so, uh, Psalm 2, and I think for time, if you're all right with it, I won't reread it since we read it this morning. Um, Psalm 2, though, is the first Messianic psalm of the Psalter, and as we saw from Psalm 1, being the second psalm and the the first Messianic uh, and royal psalm is is easy because we saw that Psalm 1 was not a Messianic psalm. And so Psalm 2 prophesies the triumph of the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom, and this psalm is also quoted three times in the New Testament, and so Lord willing will address all of those New Testament passages in the application of this lesson. Uh, in summary, Luke cites the companions of Peter and John, quoting from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. That's in Acts 4, 25 through 26. Um, Paul quotes Psalm 2, 7, um, as found in Acts 13, verses 32 and 33. And then Hebrews 1, 5. Uh, and I say Paul, but the author of Hebrews quotes it. So whatever right is... The author of Hebrews quotes it uh, from Psalm 2-7. And Psalm 2-9 is quoted by Jesus um, to John in Revelation 2-27. Also, I don't have any handouts today. Um, And we're mostly, if if you follow along in Psalm 2 in your ESV or whatever version you're using, we should be uh, on track. That being said, I usually write pretty copious notes and I, um, I annotate, I have footnotes and all that stuff. When it's all said and done, if you just really want a copy of any notes that I ever produce, I'm more than willing to, to do that. So if you t- tell me, I may not have your email address, but you tell Tim he can distribute it, or um, Quentin, someone who I, I have their email address. Um, so that being said, um, in our lesson today, I want us to consider the multifaceted aspects of Psalm 2. And one of the aspects that I want us to consider is what we glean from Hebrew poetry. Again, so we get to delve more into the poetry side. And again, uh, primarily that's going to be the elements of parallelism, the developing or expanding of the second verset. Um, uh, as I said before, it's usually an increase um, of specificity. It does. It can be synonymous sometimes. Sometimes it's, it, it is exact repetition um, of a short word or phrase in order to, to connect uh, the unit together. Um, now, is anyone here familiar with the term chiasm? Besides, oh, all kinds of hands and nods. So that's excellent. So if you don't know, and you don't need to embarrass yourself by saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. Chiasm comes from the Greek letter chi, uh, which is shaped like an X, and so we're talking about the crux, the crux of a passage um, or verse potentially. And so chiasms are common in um, Hebrew poetry. Now, um, 
Chiasms can be easy to miss, especially if you're not reading it from the Hebrew. So, if you don't catch it while you're doing your devotional reading in English, to me that's not a big deal. Um, sometimes, though, you, you'll be able to see the thread in like larger passages, and we'll see some of that today, um, where uh, you, you'll see like nation, what Yahweh's doing, and nation again, for example. And then the, the middle portion is, is the crux, or often the, the, the V-shape, depending on how you're writing that out. Um, uh, sometimes you can think of it as A, B, C, and then B prime, C prime. And so that C, whatever's there in the middle, would be the, the chiasm. And many scholars will uh, try and sell you on, on the idea that that's the most important part, which may or may not be true, um, depending on, on the context and what you're looking at. Um, since this is a Bible study, though, when we come across the chiasm, I will point it out to you. So... Uh, if it's something that can be missed in, in the English. But again, I think that with a little bit of effort in your even in, in your English Bible reading, you'll, you'll find some. Uh, for example, uh, regarding this psalm, in spe- uh, specifically one scholar wrote, Beginning with the tumultuous nations, the poet then turns to God and his king before concluding chiastically with the nations. Again, now subdued rather than tumultuous. So you go from the nations trying to rage to uh, Yahweh sitting in the straight, to them being subdued and not um, in rebellion. Um, we will also speak about the messianic idea and theme of the text. Um, and then uh, we'll also consider how the New Testament used the Old Testament and how the apostles, inspired by the Holy Spirit, interpreted and translated um, this psalm. Uh, because it's interesting, and I would say... Uh, Quite often, the apostles are, are um, uh, when they're when they're quoting from the Old Testament, are doing it from the Greek, um, which which um, is, is interesting and ex- can certainly expand uh, what was going on in the Hebrew text. And um, for what it's worth, uh, I'll, I'll consider the the Hebrew or the Old Greek of, of a text uh, when it's available from the New Testament. But um, the only time we should really um, give priority to that reading is we certainly can when the apostles do it because we know it's inspired. Other than that, um, it's, it's um, you know, certainly a gifted, wise scholar's translation. Um, so we'll, we'll take all that in turn. Um, now, perhaps the first thing you, you would notice as the reader is that this psalm does not have a header or an introduction. So it doesn't say a psalm of David. It doesn't say it's a mictum. Um, it doesn't say why it was written um, or, or, or anything else. Now, so the author does not identify himself as David nor provide any background. But we know for a fact that it's a Davidic psalm um, because Luke tells us that it's a Davidic psalm in Acts uh, 4, 24 through 26. And what, what Luke states is, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes Psalm 212. So we know that um, David wrote it. Yeah? Do you know if there's a tradition of Davidic authorship or kind of beyond or before uh, Acts? Um, I, I don't know specifically, but I found that... Um, Jewish tradition tends to 
um, hold in line a lot more of what we would normally assume. And so I, I think that that would probably be safe to say. Um, and uh, it, it seems sometimes it's only the more liberal scholars that just don't um, hold the sense of, of inspiration, even though specifically, you know, Luke is saying the Holy Spirit inspired David to, to write this. Um, but, uh, Bill. So, as a casual reader of this, why is, why is in the ESV the, the structure of the lines are different than in other other books of the scripture, all the way, even including 150, I don't know, maybe some of the others are, are different, but it has insets. Right. It, it looks different, but we have yeah. pointed out. So the, the ESV, at least, um, and some, some other modern translations, uh, everything that they believe to be poetic, they set in poetic form. So it's like meter? Yeah. Meter yep. yep. Yeah, and that's a good way for you to then say, uh, A, what's more B, because you're seeing um, that, um, or ABBA, or ABAB, uh, it, it varies. Sometimes they throw in the C like we saw this morning. Um, and so, so that's that's helpful. It, it's more helpful, I think, when they when the translator does that. Um, another literary device that, that we'll see um, when we consider Psalm one and two collectively um, is uh, the literary device called inclusio, um, which is a bracketing or an envelope type structure, uh, which consists of creating a frame by placing similar material at the beginning and the end of a section. And now what we have here, uh, one of the reasons why we believe Psalm 1 and 2 are um, of, of, a, of a same unit, even if, okay, let's say an editor put them together, maybe David didn't write Psalm 1, he certainly wrote Psalm 2, the editor, at a minimum, as an introduction to the Psalter, put Psalm 1 and 2 together with the inclusio of Psalm 1-1, happy is the man, to Psalm 2-12, um, happy is the man, uh, happy are all who take refuge in him, as Psalm 2.12. And so we see that those uh, two psalms are in, in included together as a unit. Um, when I come to speak on the psalms, I think, generally speaking, I'll just do like the next two psalms. But there are other psalms, like uh, Psalm 42 and 43, for example. You also see us missing a header between. And if you read them together, you'll see a theme. So however it lands on that month and day, if I was supposed to do Psalm 41 and 42, I'm going to skip 41 and do 42 and 43 together because I think that they fit. And then strangely we'll go back to 41 and 44 or something. But it'll work out. We'll have plenty of way and we'll learn Greek things. Um, another uh, interesting thing about Psalm 2 specifically is that um, it has two Aramaic loanwords in it. And so the majority of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, uh, and there are portions then that are written in, uh, of the Old Testament that are written in Aramaic. And, and namely, that'd be like uh, Daniel 2, um, maybe verse 7 or something, into, into 7, 1 or 2 is, is Aramaic. But you'll find that if you ever discover your Bible study notes say something um, generally speaking, when Aramaic is used, it's usually uh, uh, used because this address is not just for the Jewish people. 
this is something that the whole world needs to hear. And Aramaic was the, the lingua franca, the language of the day, just like, in theory, <coughs> English is essentially the language of the, of the day. Um, so, um, for what's worth, verse 1, the word rage is, is an Aramaic loan word. And then um, in verse 12, um, the, the he, instead of using the Hebrew word for son, they use the Aramaic uh, you would have heard uh, in the New Testament, Simon bar Jonah. That's the Aramaic way of Simon, son of Jonah. And then you've, you would have heard uh, the term Ben. And now I can't think of a good example, but Ben is the Hebrew word for son. I guess in Hebrew he would have said Simon, Ben, Jonah. But I can't think of a good example off the top of my head, so I apologize for that. Um, because this is a, a Messianic psalm, and, and a Davidic um, because David is, is the lineage of, of the Messiah, uh, I think there's value in us in a, uh, looking quickly at Second Samuel seven, uh, which is the introduction of, of the Davidic covenant, and it's kind of a chunk, but um, I'll read Second Samuel seven eight through sixteen, just so that the Davidic covenant is fresh in your mind, um, and then and then it'll hopefully make sense as we go through chapter two or Psalm two. Now therefore. Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly... From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, moreover Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. Uh, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish this kingdom. And I can even picture Paul saying there, it's offspring, singular, not plural, you know, just like he did with seed, not seeds, but... Um, so that's pointing to um, the coming Messiah. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, regarding this as a Messianic psalm, historically, um, for, for, for years, they would have expected the lineage of David to continue. But then, um, once the monarchy had ended with Zedekiah and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 B.C., then the questions would have arisen in regard to the promise of the Davidic covenant that we just read. So now they're saying, well... Yahweh, the covenant name of God, said that this would be, but now we don't have a king on the throne. And so as they started to think about what the implications were, the faithful came to believe that there was a deeper meaning to the promise than having a king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And so they began to expect a future Messiah. Um, and for what it's worth, Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. So synonyms are Messiah, anointed, Christ. Those are all the same word. Hebrew, Greek, English, you know, 
Messiah, Christ anointed. Um, and so, certainly we believe that there's prophecy in this Messianic text, but I think that the original readers would not have understood it that way right away. They're seeing it as part of the Davidic covenant until um, the kingdom ended. Alright, so let's dig into the text. Any questions so far? I think I have like 45 minutes to cover 12 verses. We're, we, are, we are doing great. Alright, let's keep up the momentum. So verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? So, he says why in our English text. Literally, um, the Hebrew would phrase it like to what or for what. Um, Meaning why, but in one sense it's saying, for what purpose? Um, why in the world are these nations raging and plotting because it's going to come up to nothing, to emptiness? So what in the world are they doing? So it's an expression of astonishment at their futility. It's not a surprise or a worry. Okay, It's like, well, what are they even thinking? This is not going to work well for them. So it's not surprise or worry. Um, the term nations in the beginning uh, of, of that, that, that A, let's call it, the, the, is a generic term for the nations. It's the same word that we get from the Latin word Gentile. So like in, in uh, the New Testament, when translators say the Gentiles, it's the same kind of thing, the generic term for nations. Um, then we have the word rage, which... It's pretty straightforward. It's a restless tumult. That's that Aramaic loan word that I was telling you about. Um, with the uh, description of snorting, neighing, or the stomping of a horse, demonstrating its agitation. So that's a very picturesque way of thinking about what these nations are doing with their snorting and stomping and this fury that they have um, at Yahweh and his anointed. Um, and then uh, paired then in the second is uh, a repetition of the word people, but this is a more poetic word for the people group. And it's uh, when it's used in poetry, it's usually paired alongside um, the, the more common words, so uh, which it is um, with, with the word nations, it's, it's paired with that, with that word there, especially in Psalms and Isaiah. Um, and it usually occurs in the plural um, and referring to non-Israelite nations when, when it's used like that. The, the people's plot in vain. Um, I guess when I say 51.4 though, it, it has occurred in the singular referring to the people of Israel, but um, it, it usually is referring to other nations. Um, Another interesting nuance I found in my studies um, is that both in the Hebrew and the Ugaritic, the word may carry the connotation of warrior. So we're going to see a warrior theme as well. And um, uh, people in the second half. Yeah. Um, so it has been used in military context in these opening uh, verses which suggest a nuance of, of warriors could fit. Um, so Ugaritic is a Semitic language, just like Hebrew is. Um, and so they share a lot of the same traits. Um, it, it, uh, it's a more northern uh, variation of a Semitic language, 
north and northeast, uh, northwest of, I'm supposed to do this to do the audience, northwest of, of Israel. Um, uh, so, uh, as memory serves, there were the Ebalite tablets that were found, and um, it gave tremendous insight into the study of Hebrew poetry. And so uh, there are scholars who have spent a lot of time studying the Ugaritic and trying to see how that fits into um, Hebrew, Hebrew poetry in the Psalms. And so I, I find it in- interesting and fascinating. And I also think that when we study um, Psalms, and especially the Psalms of David, but I mean, we also have to remember that the Holy Spirit inspired the authors. Um, and I think one of the benefits of considering the, the Ugaritic words and, and, and ideas as well is because David um, would have been familiar with their, their language and their uses. And I'd rather give more credence to Scripture than less. And so I think that this psalm is a very interesting uh, psalm where a lot of key words and phrases are used that have very broad and maybe dual meanings. And I think in the context, both meanings fit. And so usually we say, you know, an author has one, um, like like there might be one interpretation for what the author meant, but several applications. I'm giving, I, I think, reasonably credit to David that he might have been purposely picking words and phrases that fit um, a broad meaning. And so we're going to look at kind of the warrior theme and also the the nations and plotting in vain kind of themes that are straightforward in the English text. So I find that interesting and, and hopefully I can make it enjoyable for you too. So that first word is then peoples. It could, could be interpreted as warriors. So that, that's one thing that we'll consider. Now we have the word plot, which is planning or meditating. So you're when you're plotting and you're planning and you're meditating, you're looking at something from different angles throughout different times of day. So you're really like, let's look at this problem, this thing, from every angle and every perspective. Let's think about it throughout the day and let's um, sort it out. Um, Psalm 1-2 says, for example, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So he's plotting and planning day and night. He's meditating on it. And that's what these um, nations are considered uh, to doing. They're, they're meditating. They're plotting and planning on what they're going to do um, about Yahweh and his anointed, as we'll see. Well, plot um, could also be translated as to number or to number their troops. So if, if peoples can be troops or warriors, um, plot also could mean number. So we could have the phrase number their troops instead of people plotting in vain. But it, so, for example, it could be why do the nations rage and the warriors number their troops is, is one way that, that could be considered. So in addition to signifying to mumble, utter, or speak, this word also denotes to number or count out loud. It's a nuance brought out by um, some Ugaritic texts um, where it's the same root word, um, and it happens to refer to serfs beyond counting, archers beyond number. Um, and so that, that may speak volumes to, to how we in, interpret this. Um, and, and so then, vain, void or empty. 
So we have the peoples laboring for nothing. And this is a, a common saying in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 51, 58, the peoples labor for nothing or in vanity. Um, and the nations weary themselves only for fire. Um, Habakkuk 2.13 says the same thing. Behold, is not from Yahweh of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing or weary themselves in vain. So here it's being used consistently in the Old Testament as um, uh, for vanity, for for plotting in vain. Now the the translators of of the Old Greek went with... um, uh, a different word for empty or vain, um, which is also quoted in um, the New Testament. The Syriac uses a similar word for vanity, worthless or empty, um, and so does the Aramaic Targums. Why are the nations disturbed and murmuring vanity? But again, this meaning for for that particular word could be translated as troops. Um, and that's based on um, it can be supported in the Old Testament as well, which is why we wade through this stuff. So Genesis 14, 14 speaks of, he led forth his trained men. It's the same word there, um, troops or trained men instead of um, vanity. Uh, it's used in Psalm 35, 3, referring to drawing or readying the spear, a drawing or readying idea. Um, and, and I I will try to make a little more sense of this uh, in a minute. Judges 9.4 and Judges 11.13. This phrase um, for the the troops of Abimelech uses the same word. It's usually translated as worthless fellows or um, vagabonds, um, which is a term probably signifying like the enlisted men, um, the (laughs) <laughs> the wretches of the, of the army, uh, the vagabonds, all the enlisted men, uh, the, the fodder, um, uh, or uh, some, something similar. So if, if, it, if it is talking about numbering or counting, um, it could also be referred to then as those being called or summoned, those that are being counted. Um, I already referenced Genesis 14, 14. Abraham, when he heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men. And that's the same word for, for vain there. So this word seems to be an idea of progressing from the act of pouring forth or being called out. Um, a liquid poured forth from a vessel or a people called out or summoned from a home or city. The implication then is that when the liquid is poured out, or a person is summoned or called out, the vessel from which they came is now empty. So now I'm trying to make the connection between how we could be numbering troops and also be talking about vanity or nothingness. So in the full use of the word, it can refer to an empty vessel, thus figuring, figuratively referring to void or nothingness or vanity, but it could also be used prepositionally as the ones who are summoned or called out. So it could be the thing that's being poured out of the thing that's being called out, or it could be once that thing's been poured out and you've got this container, it's empty. So it could, the word in in its fullest meaning could be both. And that's why we're wrestling through, well, is it being used in in a warrior context or a plotting in vain kind of context? Um... 
And my argument is, I, I think that David picked these words because he means both. Um, why did the, the, the nations rage and the people's plot invade? Or why did the nations rage and the warriors count their troops or ready their troops? And in the end, the, the result's the same. It's all going to end in vanity, uh, as we'll see, because Yahweh sits in heaven and last. Well, Adonai, Adonai sits in heaven and last. Um, and that's one of the benefits of the distinction between Lord with lowercase R-D and uppercase, uh, because it's the distinction. I'll get to that. I get excited, sorry. We'll, we'll get to that. So, let's look at the parallelism of verse 1. Um, does anyone want to take some guesses of what they see as parallelisms out of those those two lines? Um, if you look at the line, line 1 is A and line 2 is B, what are some things that you see as parallels? Yep. Nations and people, or warring peoples. What else? I have one more. Uproar and vain Say that one more time. Uproar and vain Yes. Um, yeah, our translation says rage or conspiring, right? Is that what the ESV yeah. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that we were thinking the same thing, and I thought, I thought we were. Um, and then, uh, in that parallelism, we also have chiasm. So what we have are, is A, B, B, A. And I didn't check necessarily to see if it's in, in the English this way, but um, the, the order is rage, nations, warring nations, plot in vain. So A is rage, A prime is plot in vain, and then B and B prime are nations and warring nations. So you, you have a, a mini chiasm, so to speak. Um, kings in the ancient Near East consider considered themselves to be appointments by the will of the gods. Um, their deities were often multiple and considered territorial. Um, I'm sure that's not unfamiliar to you. Gods of the different lands. Um, or, for example, Yom was the god of the sea. Um, throughout Hebrew scripture, though, we see that Yahweh is described not only as the god of Israel, um, the god of the people, and not just the land of Canaan, um, and, and certainly this was proven because he rescued his people from Egypt um, and from Babylon. And so even the people in the land of Canaan, when they came from Egypt, were kind of terrified um, because of, of what they did to Egypt. But God is also, Yahweh is also the God of heaven and earth. He's described as the true rider on the clouds in Psalm 68.4-104.3. These kings conspire on behalf of their deities in a vain attempt overthrow Yahweh's anointed and even Yahweh himself if they could. So that's what's going on in verse 1. And, that, and the, the description continues in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying. So we have the, the idea of set themselves and what this is is, um, is a taking a stand. They're setting themselves up. They're taking a stand, and the implication is they're pitched for battle. Um, a planned military encounter on a prearranged battleground. So they are setting themselves up in the idea of taking a stand for battle. And so here we see the continuation of the warrior motif. So they're readying themselves for a violent and vigorous confrontation. Um, and then we have take counsel, which is literally to sit together, um, and it's denoting their um, deliberation. So they're, they're taking counsel, the, the Hebrew literal, literally meaning sitting together, they're 
having their war council. They're sitting together, they're plotting and planning, what, what, what are we going to do? And it's against uh, uh, Yahweh's anointed, the Messiah or the Christ. Um, and if you wanted to geek out on words just a little bit, Messiah, Mashiach, uh, is also an onomatopoeia, um, which gets its name from the smearing of oil, the shiach is where the shiach. So it happens. Sounds like some Hebrew, huh? I guess so. It's, it seems like a little bit of a stretch, but there you have it. So, onomatopoeia. Boy, don't try to spell that word without a spell check. <laughs> Just saying it, I'm nervous. Like, did I get that T in the right place? How uh, did you spell it? <laughs> O-N-O-M-A-T-O-P-O-E-I-A. I have spell check. <laughs> in, in fact, I use Grammarly as well. Have I mentioned that in the past? Um, actually, speaking of John 6, because I brought that up as an example earlier, uh, John 6 talks about man's ability. Uh, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And that, that word, no one can, uh, can denotes ability. And one of the illustrations I use in, in my sermon is when, when I'm verbose in my Word document, um, Grammarly says, you can cut some of these words down into like one or two words. And when I say, has the ability to, it always says, why don't you replace those three, four words with can? And that's what, that's what John did. He said, no one has the ability to. Grammarly told him, no one can come to the come to me unless the Father draws him. Um, for what it's worth, I use the free version, so I'm not selling Grammarly to anyone. Um, next to the text, we have kings of the earth um, uh, and, and rulers. So kings, princes, rulers. Um, and they're taking a stand. They're conspiring together against Yahweh, specific, and, and specifically against his anointed one. And this is a Davidic uh, royal psalm. So in the meantime, the nations are raging against the Israelites and the Davidic king. Um, and they're, they're uh, conspiring against the God of Israel, but also whoever um, Yahweh has put on the throne. Uh, I found a chiasm in this um, verse as well. We have take a stand, kings of the earth, then rulers, and conspire in unity. So take a stand and conspire in unity is uh, A and A prime, kings of the earth, and rulers, B and B prime. Um, I don't know if I mention it later, but um, I, think, I think it's actually later where it's verse 11. I'm thinking it, it uses the same kind of kings of the earth and rulers or judges. Um, if you can stay in Psalm 2, keep a finger or a tab in there or something, but also turn to Acts 4. Um, I want to read um, Acts 4, 25, 25 through 31 um, because of how it adds some to the context. Um, and it'll make just a little more sense if you're able to look your eyes back onto it while we're talking about it. So when Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the others had said what what they had said to them. And when their companions heard it, they lifted their voices together to God 
and said. And for what it's worth, I find it fascinating that we have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through a group of people that Luke records. Fascinating. So this is what they said. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So even in Acts 4, 25-28, we see Calvary itself predicted here from the psalm. Through the roles of kings and rulers being fulfilled respectively by Herod and Pilate and those of the nations, the, the Goyim, the Gentiles, and the peoples, um, by the Gentiles and the peoples, plural, as in the psalm, and then also of Israel. And these united against the Lord's anointed, who we see as Christ. Um, and that passage points out... Uh, so we see in Acts 4.28 that, that this verse points out the quiet sovereignty of God. Acts 4.28 um, spoke of all to do what, whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. And so we specifically see the sovereignty of God in that. Uh, despite it being the most horrendous thing the world has ever done in history by crucifying the one innocent man, um, it was all according to God's plan. So, this is not David speaking against Saul's attacks against him. This is specifically speaking of the, against his anointed, speaking against Jesus. This whole and the subsequent couple of verses as well. Uh, I, I would say prophetically, it is pointing to Jesus and messianically, but um, and I think from day one. But I don't think that the people understood it to its fullness right away. I, I believe from my studies that um, Psalm 2 was written likely by David, I believe, I would argue, before his coronation, and that this was probably recited as a coronation, a royal psalm, and then uh, that it was repeated with every coronation thereafter. And I will speak to that in a little bit more detail, but that's that's what I believe is is what it is, and so it's also a royal psalm. But it is speaking ultimately to God's final anointing, and that's why it's important that um, the New Testament um, disciples, this group, they interpreted that way, and Luke confirmed it as inspired through his authorship of it. But they would have understood it as. Back then, they would have understood it as the Israel king. Yep, right? the king that's on, the king that's on the Davidic throne. Yeah, yeah, yep. Isn't Jesus that? Yes. Right, but is it? It's not also speaking to David. I mean, yes, 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 absolutely. Lord, which yes. Lord is this Adonai? This is the Lord in the or 
Who sits in heaven and laughs, yes. What? Uh, in verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs, yes, is Adonai. So that's not, that's not David. What? That Lord in verse 4 is not David, that's Adonai. Yeah, I got, yeah. Right. I okay. that, but that's the Lord speaking of David, that I have sent my king David. Is not King David on his holy hill? Yes. Oh. Yep. Yeah, yep. David's saying, Yahweh sent me here. Yeah. And, and, and all of his descendants thereafter. But also, as yeah. you said, and then the quarters, the quarters yep. of those is that prophetic nature yep. is drawn from this as well. Yeah. So the image, I guess, of, especially the, the, um, the kind of company fighting, kind of, I can't remember the movie you call it, but really the interesting and helpful is to think of little tiny Israel with little tiny David on a little tiny holy hill surrounded by the throngs of the nations rattling the sabers saying, let's get busy. Uh, this is kind of what's going on there, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And throughout history. Yep. Yeah. Right. That's, exact, that's, that's exactly right. Who's going to dash and break Yeah. And it's painful at the time because they, they had to live through it and they hung their harps when they went into captivity and all that. Um, and they, they were probably thinking, what, you know, was it in vain that they raged? Because I feel a little defeated right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so actually now it's a good time to transition to the fact that Psalm 2 is a royal psalm it does uh, relate to the throne of David uh, historically um, although no specific historical event um, is denoted in here um, that's why I argue from what I've read that it's, it was written probably before his coronation and, and then used there, thereafter. Um, Yahweh's anointed includes any king who would sit on the throne of David. Um, since the psalm has a prophetic dimension, it points the reader forward to the specific Messiah now realized in Jesus. So we saw that in uh, Acts 4. Um, and we can also be sure of this as Paul speaks to it in Acts 13, verses 22b and 23. He's, um, Paul, Paul's being quoted, He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found Dave, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Um, and then that leads us into verse 3, where the text says, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Um, It can be understood as um, throw off their yoke from us is the way the Greek and the Latin Vulgate um, translated the word rope or cords. So they took it as um, yoke, throw off their their yoke. Um, And so the implication um, based on that historic reference is that cords could be a metonymy, um, the part standing for the whole. So... um, so cords could stand for the whole yoke, which the ropes held in place. So it it could be that idea. It could be it could be ropes, but it could be ropes pointing to the whole the whole yoke. And that's how the translators um, centuries ago translated it. Yeah. Sorry. And for them to indicate that there is a restraint of some sort implies. Inherently, that they're, they know they're being restrained by something. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it, that's a good way to think of it. Um, and again, that seems like what the woke culture, it's like they feel constrained on every side by conservatism, and they're just like, we have to throw all this off, and then they they just go insane with it to where, um, well, I wonder if I could think of some of the strange things. So math is now racist. Uh, waking up on... No, getting a good right, night's rest is racist, and and all kinds of like just strange, weird things. Like they're they're just kicking against the goads. They're just trying to um, go against everything that makes sense because they feel like I'm being bound and I don't like it. Coherence is binding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a reason that the pronoun there is plural? Their bond, their their um, you know, that, that's a great, great point. Um, I don't, I want to check two things real quick. So verse three. Yeah, so, uh, um, Just free up. So, something to think about. 
Um, so the, the kings of the nations desire to break free from the authority of Yahweh and his anointed. Um, and uh, I think one of the commentators I read said, a typically blind reaction to God's easy yoke and cords of compassion. And so believers, we, we see God's yoke as light, and, and they see it as heavy. Um, for the sake of time, I won't read this, but if you write down Hosea 11.4 and Matthew 11.28-30, through 30, they are excellent references of Yahweh's cords of kindness. And you, you, uh, 11, 28 through 30. Um, even Psalm 1 uh, that we read this morning, yet his delight is in the law of Yahweh. The, the law of Yahweh is his delight. Even there we see that one can delight in the law of Yahweh versus, to, versus being confounded by it. And then even Psalm 2, 12 in the same chapter, um, happy are those who take refuge in him. But not the nations. They are not happy. So verse 4. Um, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Adonai holds them in derision. Um, so uh, another poetic device is um, uh, a greater use of, um, I think they're rightly called prepositions. The one who sits, the sitting one. You, you get a lot more of those um, in, in poetry. And so here we see Adonai is the sitting one, uh, the one who sits enthroned, literally uh, he who sits. Um, but this, this term is also um, often used um, fully as, or pregnantly as, throne sitter. Um, so not just um, the one who sits, but the throne sitting king in heaven laughs. Um, are, all, are you all fairly familiar with the use of Adonai, just meaning Lord and Sovereign? Um, it's, it's the same kind of word used like uh, Sarah called Abraham Lord. So on a simple term, it can be used as Lord or Master. Um, more so it is used as Lord as in the Sovereign King of the Universe. Um, certainly context is critical, but um, in this sense it's clearly being, being used as Sovereign as the Lord of the Universe as he's enthroned in heaven. Um, Deuteronomy 10, 17 speaks to God of gods and Lord of lords. Um, and that's even uh, quoted in 1 Timothy 6, 15. Um, and I say that, and I'll, I'll use another example as well. I, I was having a conversation with someone. I was wearing my Western Reform Seminary sweatshirt, and he said Reformed. And, and he, he asked about that. And he said, you probably don't even read the King James Version, do you? <laughs> oh, man, did we get on that tangent. So I kept using you know, good Reformed words like sovereign, the sovereignty of God, and this and that. Because I said, I met him on a Saturday, and I said, now when you go to church tomorrow, and you tell your friends, I met a Calvinist yesterday, I said, you know, let, let's be reasonable here. I'm not a Calvinist who doesn't believe in evangelism. Yeah, but you can't say that God loves you. Well, you're right. I don't know if God loves you, but I can say that God, Jesus died for sinners. I can I can say that to everyone and, and anyone. So long story short, he he said you keep using that word sovereign. It's not even in the Bible. He means the King James. That's the bull. 
And that's where I lost my patience. I just wanted to buy a cabinet from him. <laughs> also, that being said, I tried to learn and grow from the experience because I called him ignorant. I said, that's just ignorant because the KJV onlyists tend to be very KJV onlyists. They don't even want to hear the Greek and the, and the Hebrew and all this other stuff that goes into it. But if you study what Adonai means, I said, it's in his name. <laughs> you know, we call him Adonai. It's in his name. He's the Lord. He's the sovereign. He's the king. And with that, Ethan and I jumped in the truck as quickly as we could. <laughs> but, yeah, but I got the cabinet, yeah. So, and it was cold outside. He, he, he followed me out so he could, he could talk to me about my sweatshirt and his t-shirt. And so I was hoping he would get colder before I did. But for what it's worth, even Ethan admitted, um, he's my second oldest, he was there. He, he admitted that I was trying to be reasonable in the conversation and this guy was being belligerent and attacking but so but we have words like king and god of god and lord of lords we, we have these words and so in hindsight I, I told myself I need to calm down and say look I'm saying the sovereignty of God we're talking about his lordship we're talking about the fact that he's creator of heaven and earth and, and then he, one great example is 1 Timothy 6.15 no I'm sorry Acts uh, 4.24 Lord you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea, and all that is in them. Now, Lord, in, in that text, is not kurios, um, which is the more common word, but uh, it is the word despota, yeah, or despotase, depending on the nuance. So, despota, what does that sound like? Yeah, that's exactly where the word despot comes from. One who has uh, a ruler or other person who holds absolute power. Now, we tend to think of it negatively, but Yahweh is the despot of the universe. He is the one who holds complete power and authority. Um, so that I shouldn't call. So he's sitting in heaven. Adam is sitting in heaven, the sovereign king of the universe, and he laughs, he derides, he mocks. Um, so even even there we have a what's so that's that's the parallelism there that we see laugh uh, in a and derision. And B, so that's definitely, uh, he doesn't just laugh at them, he derides them. Because, like, come on, people. <laughs> I'm the God of the universe. What? It's like an ant. Are you really going to fight against me? I'll squish you. Um, so, what we have is the anthropopathic language of God laughing at the futile efforts of men. First um, Corinthians one twenty. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Um, Colossians two fifteen is worth writing down, uh, and Revelation eleven eighteen, um, where it, it shows that um, God derives that and, and, and destroys the destroyers of the earth, for example. So verse five. Uh, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Um, so the form of address speak um, here is actually an impassioned speech. So he's speaking passionately. He speaks passionately to them in his wrath. The parallelism we have in verse 5 is speaking passionately um, in anger, uh, burning wrath, and terrify. And that's the... the Chiasm there. Speak passionately, anger, burning wrath, and terrify. A, B, B, A. 
know I was pretty quick through that. We track them right. Hebrews six or uh, uh, Psalm two verse six. I thought for sure we could get through this in fifty minutes. <laughs> no way. Um, so he set or established um, his king on his on his holy hill. Um, boy, there's some really interesting stuff in there associated with set and uh, the Ugaritic. I'm just not going to pull that out right now. Messiah among the nations and what's the final problem? 
Yeah, there, there is uh, more in, I would say, Revelation 20 that speaks to um, the, the realm of nations. One of the key things is, um, how would Jesus shepherd or rule with an rod of iron if we were talking about the eternal state where only believers exist and we're all regenerate? Why would we need to come to Zion for the law? Why, why would he need to rule um, and, and shepherd with an iron rod and, and dash them t- to pieces um, if, if they weren't there? Um, so I, I, I had more time in my Revelation 20 piece in that chapter that would probably give more insight than I could provide um, quickly. Um, but, but there is, uh, Scripture does speak to that happening after his return. And so that's the idea. Is Yes, he comes and he destroys um, uh, uh, the, the, the beast and the dragon, the warring nations, uh, with the word of his mouth, the breath of his mouth. But then there is implication after that that he's ruling for a period before um, Satan is let loose again. Um, to which there is a second rebellion after that, and that has to be the people that he's controlled with his rod of iron and saying, nope, you're going to follow? You're, you're not going to rebel right now. And he, and he, he, he guides them in, until the end. Satan gets one more chance um, to, to flare up, and then that's when he, uh, Christ ultimately defeats him. So that's that's what I argue, and that's and I've given you a, a copy of that chapter. But if it's mildly confusing and anyone else wants to read it, I was given a chance to write a, a historic pre-mill perspective of the visions of Revelation in a chapter for a multi-views book, and so I do argue to, to that sum in there. I think Leland's comments were that this is a destructive book, right? The rolling the broad iron is destruction, yeah. not building up. And my, I guess my simple thought all the time has been hearing that, well, he's got to destroy something in order to build back up, right? Uh, the nations and their wicked laws and their wicked ways aren't just as such brought into the kingdom, right? They're destroyed as God builds up from that, something else that they can bring into the kingdom. Just the thought about the productive nature of Christ's rule just as opposed to just the destructive realities of the judgment. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I... I think I put the chapter, my, one of my cleaned up versions of it, um, on academia.edu. So in theory, it's out there for free before it's even been Without published. the bad words. Without, without the bad Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah without the bad words. Mostly that's like the misspelled ones or something. But actually, I, I, we, were, we were limited in space, and so I had to cut it from like 20,000 words to 17,000 words or something. But and so, yeah. So it's, it's somewhere in there, one of those. But all right. So I'm sorry we didn't get through the last several um, verses. There's a lot of good, interesting things in there. I'll, I'll, I'll wait. I think it's probably worth moving on. And next time, we probably will do like three and four instead of the second half of two and three. I think we'll just move on. I just like to remind everybody that you've been taped as you've been speaking, and that will be on the website. So okay. If anyone wonders what you said at one point or reference, I'll be there. And I'm happy to pass out those two.
So I can, I'll, I'll just email this to Tim and anyone that wants it can ask Tim for a copy. Um, and sometimes it's easier to... I'd written my notes and was rereading it and I was like... I use a word that I don't even know what it means like, without like, like anaphora. Like why am I using a word I don't even know? And then the explanation that I put next to it like was full of loaded words. I was like, I have to look those up too. <laughs> yeah. Rhetorically emphatic reiteration. I'm like, that's my that's my layman's definition. What is wrong with me? So so sometimes re- reading the notes is easier because then you can delve into it. So I'm gonna hit stop and then we'll